Hello, everyone. I'm Ronnie McBrayer, and I thank you for finding my podcast. Here you will find my regular talks, the occasional interview, hopefully a little light from the Enneagram time to time, and hear conversations with friends on the ever-changing, ever-evolving nature of faith. If you are burned out on religion, to quote Eugene Peterson's marvelous paraphrase, but your faith is still important to you, or if you consider yourself a spiritual exile with no real place of belief to call home, then I have you especially in mind, and I hope you'll stick around. And we traveled with Paul last week to Jerusalem, to the temple, We witnessed his near death by that mob and assassination attempt, which his nephew was able to deliver news to the Roman commander that they were after his uncle. From there, he entered solely into Roman custody and for his safety was transferred to Caesarea. He outlasted two Roman governors there, Festus and Felix, and was finally, after two years there, put on a boat to Rome where he would spend two years. He was put on an Alexandrian grain ship to make that journey that shipwrecked on Malta, Then they got on another Alexandrian grain ship heading to Rome when spring came, and he finally made it uh, safely. Paul arrives in Rome by the best estimate in the spring of 60 AD. Um, Two whole years pass, and Paul is released. The thinking is, he never made it all the way to Nero, but the jam-packed Supreme Court docket finally came to his case, and tradition says that it was thrown out. That Paul was set free, acquitted of all charges, and we're going to conduct some speculative reconstruction of what happened next tonight. And I'm of the persuasion that he indeed was able to travel west to Spain. You have, uh, I think your first major heading on page two there tonight is about this Spanish speculation. Now I remember the first time that I heard this hypothesis. When uh, someone said in church that Paul possibly made it uh, to Spain. I was 17 years old. I was a senior in high school. And my pastor, who uh, more or less had rescued me from severe fundamentalism and was my mentor and the one that guided me toward ministry myself, he just mentioned it in in a sermon one day that Paul possibly made it to Spain. And I'd never... I thought I'd read the Bible, you know. I'd never read that. I'd never heard of such a thing. And so I went to him immediately after service and wanted the whole story that he had because I was a second-year honors Spanish student, and I was madly in love with my Spanish teacher. And so was every boy in, his, in her class. And I wanted to take that story to her that it might be impressive that the Apostle Paul, you know, he might have spoke Spanish, uh, even though Spanish really didn't exist at that time. But anyway, that's what I was trying. But she was already aware of the story, and I was so deflated. But anyway, that's, that's when I first heard about this all those years ago. And uh, here we are still talking about it. Uh, this tradition is well established from a number of places. And, but first, we're going to talk about, about Luke. He travels all the way to Rome with Paul. He is the one who wraps up the book of Acts with this, his perfect bow of how he wants things to be. And then there are 
two theories in regards to dating when Luke wrote these things. The early date is about 62 AD for his gospel with Acts immediately following. The thinking being that Acts leaves Paul in Rome when he does because Acts, uh, Luke doesn't know what happens to Paul. And so those who appeal for an early date uh, appeal to that date. Um, the second window of time that scholars use when dating Luke is the late 70s AD, possibly as late as 80 uh, AD, years after Paul's death, years after the destruction of Jerusalem. This would put Acts just a little bit later than that because he writes his gospel in the book of Acts as a two-volume set. He finishes one and seems to go right, right to the other. And in the past, I have opted for the later date and, and still do now more than ever because, because, this, because it's the order of the Gospels themselves. Can we get the slide uh, about the two-source hypothesis? So, the majority of scholars date Mark in the late 60s. As the Russian, as Russian, look at me, I, had, I was reading Ukrainian news before I came tonight. As the Roman-Israeli war, the first Roman-Israeli-Jewish war was breaking out. And they tend to think that Mark is dated sometime then. We know that Matthew and Luke follow because Matthew and Luke use Mark as a major source in their Gospels. And I think you have this on your page there. 90% of Mark is found inside of Matthew. Uh, Matthew uh, was a plagiarist in that sense. So he takes 90% of the whole gospel of Mark transposed into Matthew and used. 50% of Mark is found in Luke. Luke does the same thing. He is aware. Scholars would so say they look at this and they talk about Mark as the priority. Mark as the original, that's a hard word, but original written gospel with these two others uh, taking it. And then 25% of Matthew and Luke are not found in Mark at all. So that Matthew and Luke are using a different source that either Mark is unaware of or was being composed simultaneously to Mark parallel. There's a German word called quell, Q-U-E-L-L-E, -E, and scholars call this the Q source. That it has been lost to history. That it was either an oral tradition or an early written collection of the sayings of Jesus. Because Mark, excuse me, Matthew and Luke are using these together, but Mark did not have access to those. 20% uh, of Matthew is unique. He tells his own stories. 35% of Luke is unique. He spent a lot of time doing his research. And then when you get to John, 90% of the Gospel of John is unique. John is in a category to itself. It is not one of the synoptic Gospels. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, synoptics. John sits by itself. Synoptic means with the same eye. Matthew, Mark, and Luke are looking in the same direction, taking the same viewpoint. And it's no wonder that they are when two are using the one as a source, a major source uh, for their work. All this to say that Luke, by the best estimate, has to know about Paul's death just by dating the other Gospels. Because by the time Mark's Gospel gets out, 
Paul is dead. And Luke's gospel comes much later, maybe even up to a decade later. Uh, He writes in superb Greek. He writes after the destruction of the temple. He writes for a Gentile audience. That was his concern. And by the way, the oldest manuscript we have referencing the gospel of Luke is from the second century. Uh, It was found in Alexandria. Remember Apollos, the learned Alexandria Jew, the giant library at Alexandria? Uh, The oldest gospel comes from there, and tradition has that Mark was martyred in Alexandria. So of of these, these gospel writers, two of them, their works or their person are there in Alexandria at roughly the same time. That would make sense because the Roman War has destroyed Jerusalem and most of that early Christian community and most Jews are refugees on the road now. So they travel out from Jerusalem to Ephesus, to Antioch, over to Alexandria, all the way to Rome, just like any major disaster or war you see today. You go to the war in in Ukraine. There are millions of refugees as a result of that. There's still millions of refugees from the Syrian war a few years ago in a very similar location, and they scatter out everywhere to create these new communities. And they take with them these new autographs, these new gospels that are just coming together uh, to tell the story of Jesus. Are you about to raise your hand or are you stretching? Just stretching, okay, all right. Because I was going to stop. Garrett and I have talked about this for the last several, well, I was going to say the last several weeks, but we've talked about it longer than that. If we take this timeline serious, this is the interesting thing. Every Pauline letter is written before the first gospel is put on paper. And we always like to think gospels first and every... No. The first written material we have as Scripture is the book of Galatians. The second, we think, is James. Then the remainder of the Pauline letters. So we have... 14, yeah, right, 14, 14 letter, 14 books of the New Testament in place before the first gospel is written. If you take first and second Peter as authentic, you got 16, all before Mark's gospel hits the page. So the, the discussion that Garrett and I've had for a year is how much then does early Pauline theology influence the writers of the gospels, particularly when one of them not you, Siri. Uh, I don't think she was going to answer that question. But uh, particularly Luke, who spent so much time with Paul. And Mark, this is John Mark, who Paul had kicked out of one mission trip. Mark writes one of those Gospels. So that, that dynamic relationship between Paul and the Gospel writers, I don't, I don't know enough about it. I haven't studied enough, but maybe I will one day sit down and, and chase, chase that. Uh, scholarly rabbit down and see what what hole it runs down because I think that would be really interesting. Yeah, I I think, and it goes back to something Doug asked, I think, in the second session. Why was Paul so forceful when he went somewhere? Uh, Why didn't didn't uh, didn't they write down the story sooner? They, They really believed the world was ending. It's only the destruction of Jerusalem and the world didn't end that said, oh, we better get this written down. 
because it's going to take a little longer than we thought. They really believed, and we'll talk about him later, they seriously believed that Titus, the Roman general that destroyed Jerusalem, was, the, was what we would call the Antichrist. This is him. This is it. It's the end of the world. The city of God is going to fall. The temple is going to be destroyed. This is it. Christ will return. And, it, and when he didn't, they had to start making sure the next generation knew what they knew. Other questions? That's a really good question. Lucan is just, it's, it's Luke, but it's just a, when you talk about a Lucan reference, you're, you're identifying Luke himself. Yeah. Garrett said he was going to ask questions. Did that get it, Garrett? Maybe? Okay, he's going to come back here. Okay. Well, you, you've got book. But it is one thing we've talked, we talk about on car ride conversations a lot. We have recently. The references, because Luke and Matthew have references that are more mature than Mark's, if that makes sense. And the manuscripts that have been discovered, the Markan manuscripts are always older. And uh, I'm not, I'll get into this a little later, I'm not a textual scholar. Uh, I certainly don't know the multiple, we talk about the Bible being written in two languages, it's much more complicated than that, it's about a half a dozen. And people that know a whole lot more than I do know how language changes over time. It's like an example, if, if I were to find a letter uh, next decade, that you wrote to me and you said to me, you know, I was, um, it was just the most beautiful view from the top of the World Trade Center. I would know this letter predates September, 4, September 11, 2001. So there are little historical things that Luke does especially, where he makes a reference to something outside uh, Mark or, or Matthew that tells you he's writing later. Yeah. And nowadays, it used to be that these scholars would be like old rabbis. They would just lock themselves in a room and pour over the manuscripts, and they still do that. And now they run them through computer algorithms and say, look for this, look for that. And, you know, it, it continues to, to enhance. Second, after we get past Luke here, we go to Paul's own words about his intentions, knowing, of course, that his intentions didn't always come to fruition. But this is what Paul says in Romans 15. And he, remember this, he writes Romans from Corinth on his third missionary journey. So he had it already in his mind then, years before he would ever go to Rome, but ultimately he wanted to go to the edge of the world. He says this, but now that there is no more place for me to work in these regions. Let's stop. He's in Corinth. Where has he just come from and had the worst two years of his life? Ephesus. There's no room for me here anymore. So I ain't going back. He keeps reiterating this thing. There's no more room for me, for me in these regions. And since I have been longing for many years to visit you, 
I plan to do so when I go to Spain. Or Hispania is what he would have said back then. I hope to see you while passing through and to have you assist me on my journey there. He said, I might need bus fare by the time I get to you. After I have enjoyed your company a while. So I will go to Spain and visit you on the way. Spain, in the first century, is the edge of the world. Now, I know Britain's up there, but it was nothing but a bunch of, you know, Celtic barbarians up there. They didn't really count. It was an island. The edge of the mainland is Hispania, Roman Hispania, Spain. And so Paul's intentions are, I'm going to the end of the world, to the very edge of the world. And maybe I'll come back from that, or maybe I won't. But that's, this is the passage, apparently, that my pastor was referencing when I was 17 year old that I didn't know really was in the Bible. But there it is. Romans 15, 23 and following that Paul had his own ambitions to go to Spain. And then third, we go to references that are made in early Christianity. And there are three major references. Number one, the oldest is Clement of Rome. Clement was the pastor or the bishop of the Roman church for a decade. He died in 99 AD when Paul came to Rome as a prisoner. Clement would have been about 30 years old. He wrote a letter to the Corinthians that we have a portion of. It's not in the scriptures, but we do have a portion of that letter. It is virtually uncontested that it is authentically Clement's writing. And in chapter 5 of that letter, he writes, quote, Paul taught righteousness to the whole world, having reached the farthest limits of the West. And this is within 30 years of Paul's death. And Clement, being the bishop or pastor at the Rome church, would know what Paul probably had done. So that's the oldest historical extra-biblical evidence that we have, one generation after Paul lives. The second one is an apocryphal book called The Acts of Peter, or sometimes The Gospel of Peter. It's not The Gospel of Peter, but that's the name that was given to it. It was written in the second, late 2nd century, uh, and it's the book that contains the traditional account of how Simon Peter was crucified upside down. This is where that account comes from. But it also records a scene of Paul leaving Rome uh, for Spain with the Roman church on the beach with him, crying and begging him to stay, very much like what happened at Ephesus. And he sends them all back and says, I'm, I've got business to do. And so that is a late 2nd century reference. And then the third one is from a Christian historian, truly the first Christian historian named Asubius. About 315 or 320, he became the bishop of Caesarea. And again, since Paul had spent two years in prison there, a deep Pauline tradition there. And he wrote a book, and you can get it today uh, in English, Ecclesiastical History. It is not as daunting as it seems. Eusebius wrote with bullet points. What a refreshing thing for an ancient writer. It's not that dense. Just these bullet points of what happened next. And it has his own biases. It has what we might call today his own hot takes. But it is invaluable as the only existing historical record of the period. The book is composed in ten volumes. Volume 2, chapter 22. Eusebius states as a fact that Paul was released from his Roman imprisonment 
He was acquitted of all his charges and returned to his missionary activities, though Asubius doesn't provide any more detail than that. And then he goes on to say that Paul was arrested a second time by orders of Nero and was suffered martyrdom by the sword, which means he was beheaded. We're about to get to that timeline, but the best estimate, 65 to 68. Yeah, he, he, he dies late in 68, commits suicide. So it has to, it happens before that, our window sharpens. So, you know, if he's released in 62 AD from Roman imprisonment, he's, he's going to be dead before Nero dies. Then that's our window. And as we'll see in a minute, he has to get all the way to Spain and back. Most of his trips take about three years. So we have enough time for that to happen uh, in there. And then there's a fourth consideration. This statue here was erected in 1963 on the 1,900th anniversary of the Apostle Paul's arrival in Tarragona in Spain. That's the tradition. There is a deep, deep uh, tradition of the Apostle Paul preaching in Spain all across the Catalonia region all the way out to the Rock of Gibraltar and back. Um, In fact, Google this tonight when you get home. Don't do it right now. But Google, when you get home, you can go take a a cruise along the Spanish Mediterranean or you can walk the footsteps of the Apostle Paul through Spain. I mean, it's a gig now uh, if you want to do that. And there are a couple villages in particular, Tarragona and Tortosa, just south of there. And if, if what we know and what we've learned about Paul at the town of... uh, Tarragona, Tarragona, it's now, uh, goes by a different name now, but it's, it's there on the coast. But in the first century, there was a temple at Tarragona to the divine Augustus that could be seen three miles out at sea. That's big. It's like Colossus of Rhodes big. Where does Paul always go? Right into the belly of that beast. So if he was going to leave Rome and land somewhere in Spain, that would be the, that would be, first of all, it's the closest seaport, but then it's this massive Roman cult. And having just been released from his trial and feeling probably pretty snappy that, uh, you know, he had beat the Romans at their own game, I'm, I can easily imagine him going straight there and then across lower Spain and then back. So that's a very deep Spanish tradition that we have. It's not, it's not third century old. It's fifth, sixth century old, but it, but it is there. There, there is a pilgrimage there on the south side, but the, the main one in Spain is uh, Campo uh, Vio <laughs> Santiago. It's usually called in short the Santiago, but there's a whole other piece to it. And people start in the Alps, the French Alps, or in Spain, and they walk all the way to the edge of the world where it is believed that James, the brother of Jesus, martyred in Jerusalem, that they carried his remains to there and buried him at that chapel at the edge of the sea. The way of St. James is another name for it. Compostola, something like that. Is it just the Camino Santiago? Yep. 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 
And there are multiple routes. You can do like the 30-day one. But you have to do like at least like 200 miles or you don't get a stamp. You know, it's not official. You didn't really do it. But, but there are multiple, some through Portugal, some through, through, through Spain. But again, that's a deep, deep tradition that goes back, you know, a long way. Can we say for a fact that it happened? No, we're speculating. But something was going on there. Uh, and something remarkable that the Spanish church by the second century was so strong. There had to be some really groundbreaking breaking, uh, work done. Later tradition there in Tortosa, the locals claimed that Paul uh, founded the church there and that he installed as the pastor a man named Rufus. I know that sounds like a dog, R-U-F-U-S. Rufus is mentioned in the New Testament as the son of Simon of Cyrene who carried Jesus' cross. That's the connection they make uh, all the way back uh, to Jerusalem. Questions? Camino, thank you. Camino. We should all go walk that one day. It's 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 from Rome, uh, and we're going to see a map of that. I'll come back to that, okay? Because that's that's actually pertinent to where we end up tonight. Come back to that. Other questions? Let's talk about the pastoral epistles. I don't know if you've been paying attention, but we've talked about every Pauline letter so far, at least in some reference. And next week, we'll talk about all of them as we talk about the major themes of Paul. But it appears that Paul writes his final three letters after his first Roman imprisonment. Uh, let's say on his further travels. But we can only say it appears. Now, what we call the pastoral epistles, which are 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus, those three letters, uh, are disjointed from the book of Acts. So we know he wrote after his Roman imprisonment, and maybe we can do a little recap of his writing. What, what's the next slide, Garrett? The map? Okay, we'll just hold it there then. So, he writes Galatians first, after his first missionary journey. He writes the Thessalonian letters from Corinth, second missionary journey. He writes 1 Corinthians during his third missionary journey. He writes the prison epistles, and we've already debated about where those, that could have been three different locations that he, that he wrote those. He writes 2 Corinthians in Macedonia, after that terrible Ephesus experience. And his last general letter that he writes is the book of Romans, near the end of his third missionary journey from Corinth. And that's, that's significant in the sense that Romans is his most developed theological letter. It's the last one of the general letters that he wrote. It's come to maturity. Uh, it would have been impossible for Paul in 4950 A.D. to write to the Romans what he would write a decade later after fleshing out this new experience on the road. Uh, so he really matures by the book of Romans. But that's 10 of the 13 letters of Paul. So then we get to 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus. 1 Timothy and Titus are traditionally dated after his first Roman imprisonment while he's on his way to Spain, or on his way back from Spain. He's traveling, he's free. Second Timothy 
is traditionally dated after his second arrest because it's a much darker, darker letter. And, and we'll get to that in just a second. Do you have a date line on your page there? 60-62 A.D.? You do? Okay, good. So if you look at that date line, 60-62 A.D., Paul's Roman imprisonment under house arrest, the book of Acts ends. 62 to 64, uh, Paul travels further west, writes 1 Timothy and Titus. About, about, not about, July 64, Rome burns. The Neronian persecution of Christians begin. And then sometimes 66, maybe as early as 65, the death of Paul, he writes 2 Timothy, and then finally Nero dies in late 68. But here's the disjointed thing. Paul makes references in the pastoral epistles to things, places, and activities that do not reconcile anywhere in the book of Acts. Here are a few. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse number 3. As I urged you when I went into Macedonia, stay there in Ephesus. This Macedonian trip is unknown. Titus 1.5 The reason I left you in Crete, he says to Titus, was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. There is no record of Paul visiting Crete on a missionary journey in the book of Acts. Titus 3.12 As soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at Nic. Nicopolis because I have decided to winter there. Nicopolis is on the western coast of Greece at the junction of the Mediterranean and the Adriatic Seas. We have no record whatsoever in the book of Acts or any other of Paul's writings that he was ever in that town. And then finally in 2 Timothy 4.20 he says, I left Trophimus sick in Miletus. We know that he went to Miletus. But it was almost 10 years earlier. And Trophimus ain't been sick for 10 years. So this one is out of joint as well from, from, from what we know. So what do we make of it? Let's go to that map now. So the traditional fourth unknown missionary trip of Paul would go like this. He is released in Rome. Travels to Spain comes all the way back and revisits some of these areas, because those are the ones mentioned in the pastoral epistles, before being arrested once again and sent back to Rome. That is a, a traditional view of the route that Paul would have taken. Now, if he's martyred in 67, you know, we have five years. His usual trip is a three-year journey. Five years is enough time to make this loop. Three years, I don't know. Uh, some people have him going back to Colossae and Ephesus. I don't think he went back to Ephesus. I think he kept his word that he never went back there. Because he sent Timothy there. You, you go over there, you're a young man. You take, those, you take that, uh, that. They won't hate you like they did me. But it is certainly possible that he traveled back up in here into Macedonia. And certainly he mentions that he's been here. In Nicopolis. Uh, again, it's speculation, but it's the only way to make sense of the pastoral epistles and the references that he makes, because the re those references are not found in the book of Acts. Now, I have largely 
left this completely alone, but it would be malpractice not to say it. The pastoral epistles of Paul are the most disputed of his writings when it comes to authenticity. They are not the most disputed books that we have in the New Testament. Jude, 2 Peter, Revelation, 3 John have that distinction. Uh, But they are the most disputed when it comes to Paul. And again, I'm not a textual scholar, but I read and trust scholars who know the language and the style and the historiography and the textual nuance in the ancient manuscripts. And some of Paul's letters, I think I did mention this early on, some of Paul's letters are absolutely undisputed. And when it comes to biblical scholarship, that's as 100% as you can get. So... Every serious Bible scholar in the world, in the world, accepts Galatians, 1 Thessalonians, 1, 2 Corinthians, Philippians, Philemon, and Romans. Uniformly, those letters are in every ancient canon, or every list of every ancient canon, going all the way back to 150 AD. So, those are there. Three are questioned. Ephesians, Colossians, and 2 Thessalonians. Um, and then the pastoral epistles are sometimes rejected outright or they're, reject, or, or they're debated. The pastoral epistles don't appear in any canon until late in the second century. So we know they're late editions. Either those gathering the canon did not have access to those letters or they did not yet exist. Now, I'm not saying, you know, Oh, you're, you're taking books out of the Bible. No, I'm not. Don't say that. And even if somebody came along today and said, well, these aren't authentic and they need to be removed from the Bible. This Bible has been in place for roughly 1,800 years, 1,700 years. They're not going anywhere. They're not going anywhere. It's just knowledge that, that we now know and have. Yes, ma'am. Yes. And now the question is, well, why would somebody do that? Uh, it's com- it, it, yeah, it's complicated. And it would take someone with a specialty be- beyond my general knowledge to explain it, and it would then take two hours. But it comes down to when do these books show up in the earliest manuscripts and in the earliest canons? Canon is the word, means ruler, standard. We don't have a first century canon. It doesn't exist. The New Testament did not exist in 90 AD. It didn't exist in 100 AD. It didn't exist in 125 AD. The first canons that we have, a guy named Marcion has the first canon about 140, 145 AD. And Marcion was later regarded as a heretic. So even his canon, which is the earliest, fell under scrutiny. So we have to go into the late, late second century before we even have a list of the books of the Bible that we have today. And in those first lists, the pastoral letters do not appear, nor does the book of Jude, two of the Johns, or the book of Revelation. That's the origins of the scholarship. Uh, and then it, it goes in a hundred directions. 
uh, from there. But that's why. That's where they start. Then they can talk about differences in language, differences in style, differences in Koinea Greek versus Aramaic, a man writing Greek that was influenced by Aramaic. They can do all those things that I, it's over my head at that point. I'm not really interested. I'm interested in their conclusions, but I'm not interested in, the, in getting down into the details of all that. Make sense? Um, but it, it, it would, because if you do a study, a deep study of Paul, and that subject does not arise, then you didn't get the whole story. And you, you should have that whole story. And I don't, I never say those things to weaken somebody's faith. It's just, look, this is just how it is. This is just how it is. And uh, now, what do I do with the pastoral epistles? I use them. And when I reference them, I say, Paul said. Because that's still the best tradition that we have. And that's a possibility. That is an absolute possibility. And it, Right? Uh, he might have signed the book of Galatians, but usually he would have had a scribe, you know. Uh, but it would not be unusual for somebody late in the first century, after Rome destroys Jerusalem, to write as the Apostle Paul in order to capture what they know he did and said. And not in a malicious, not in some kind of way to misrepresent him. Uh, but so that his witness doesn't fall to the ground. These, all these books make it into the canon over a course of some 200 years. From about 200 A.D. to 400 A.D. And the reason they make it into the canon as they do is that little groups of people just like us, about this many, little groups of people like us all over Europe, Asia, and northern Africa were struggling with what it means to be the church trying to find good theological foundations. And these are the books that tended best to help churches find their way. That's one of the main uh, issues that was taken up when it came to putting the canon together. They worked. Christian people found them helpful. We'll keep them. And so that's, that's just a little aside, but a, but a necessary one uh, as we go forward tonight. And Colossians, there's, those are sometimes disputed. They're, they're sometimes disputed. Scholars are divided on authorship there. But, and that's, that, that comes down to stylistic reasons more than anything else. The, the books that are bulletproof, those first seven, they're thematically uh, exchangeable. Paul's theology is just, it's, it's the Pauline theology. Ephesians, Colossians... It's a little more cosmic. Uh, and then 2 Thessalonians is sort of in its category by itself. Okay, real quick. Paul's uh, arrest and his death. What's our next slide? Yep, let's do that one. What changes that Paul could be put under house arrest for a couple of years living in his own rented house then find himself desperate in prison knowing that he's about to die? Because 2 Timothy, that is the tone. Paul is no longer hopeful that I will be released and I'll see you soon. Which he says in his other prison epistles. This is the end. Yeah. That's it. 
That is 2 Timothy 4. Do your best to get here by winter, he says. He may not, he may, may not make it through that winter. And a couple of reasons. He's either going to die in this, this prison or he's going to be executed. Um, if you stick with early tradition and you stick with the same sources that I cited earlier, Paul was held in the Mamertine prison in Rome. Now, you have two versions here. On the right is an incredibly beautiful and ornate church that sits on top of the prison now, of course. But if you look on this side, so the church is here, this is a lower, older church here, and then this is an older church here, and down here is the actual prison itself. And in Paul's day, this prison was already 700 years old. It had been... Uh, it held, people, it held prisoners for centuries. By the time of Paul, it's in terrible repair. It is not a long-term prison. It is death row. And this little thing you see here, it's an altar now. And you, you see this little shadow right here? That is the original cistern. So these prisoners were held. That's, that's their drinking water and their bathroom facility. It's a desperate, desperate place. Tradition says that Simon Peter would find himself in the same cell before, before his death. Um, Paul is there because of the fire that destroyed Rome in 64 AD. Tacitus, the Roman historian, says that the fire broke out near the Circus Maximus, right in the heart of the wealthiest part of town. It was a July night. It was hot. The winds were blowing. There had been little rain that summer. It burned for 10 days. And it destroyed 10 of the 14 quarters of the city of Rome. The worst damage was done on the north and east side of the Tiber River. You can see the Tiber River with the blue uh, arrows. And where I put the red circle, the worst damage done to, to Rome during that fire was there. Uh, that's where the Roman senators lived. The Roman Forum was there. The Roman Senate was there. All the power brokers. It was, it was uh, <laughs> should I say this? There's a fire on 30A and Seaside burns down. I mean, it is, it, is the, it is a wealth concentration. And because it was the wealthiest part of town, everyone blamed Nero. Every Roman historian of the day holds Nero responsible as the chief arsonist of the fire that destroyed Rome in 64 AD. They do not hold him responsible that he fiddled while Rome burned, that he needed proper inspiration for his artistic expression. That's, that's a wives' tale. He wasn't even in Rome when the fire started. But he had the fire started for two reasons. One, he wanted to further weaken his political enemies who happened to live inside that circle. And two, he wanted to rebuild the city of Rome in his own image. How can I get rid of my great-great-great-great-grandfather Augustus' statues without causing a big deal and put my statues in his place? Well, I'll burn the place down. Nero, certifiably insane. Insane. One of the most insane and cruel leaders of ancient history. Just name uh, Pol Pot, Hitler, name any of them. You can put Nero right up there with them. Uh, so, everybody's blaming Nero. You see the blue circle, quarter eight, quarter 13 in the Roman city. 
across the Tiber River, on the southwest side, poorest communities in Rome, untouched by the fire. And that's where the Christians lived. And so for Nero's narrative, he came up with the alternative that it was the Christians who did this. Now, whether people believed it or not is beside the point. The Christians made an appropriate scapegoat in order for the drama to settle. And in 64 AD, and honestly extending over the next 35 years, the remaining decades of the first century, Christianity would become uh, persecuted, become an officially persecuted religion by the Roman Empire. So when Paul, you can imagine Paul getting back from his Spanish vacation... (laughs) And he left, and he was on top of the world, and everything was great. After the fire, you know, you can appeal to Caesar if you choose. But he was not going to survive that, neither was Simon Peter, and neither were hundreds upon hundreds and hundreds of Roman Christians. Uh, Next slide, if you would. He's 60 years old. Mm -hmm. So... This is, one of my, this is one of my favorite things about early Christian history. Nero unleashes hell on Christians. If you see the old images of being Christians, Christians being thrown to the lions. That's Nero. There is a long-standing tradition in Tacitus that he used the children of Christians dipped in olive oil for torches in his garden. He is a cruel man. He unleashes hell, and in the process, he's going further insane. He murders five of his own wives and keeps remarrying. Uh, why you would want to marry him, I don't know. Uh, or yeah, you didn't, you, you, you didn't have a choice. He takes his own life in 68. And it was pretty much he's going to kill himself or, or Roman had enough. And then they have this year of civil war. Who is going to be in charge? And then in 69 AD, a man named Vespasian is able to consolidate power and become Caesar. It's the end of the Julian dynasty. So, Mickey, we've been talking about all these Caesars. So if you go all the way back to Julius, the first divine Caesar, Julius, Augusta, all all of these, that line ends with Nero. He's the last. He has no heir, and they didn't want his heir anyway. Vespasian becomes emperor by force. And I've told this story before. Vespasian was involved in a little ordeal in Jerusalem at the time when Nero died, the conquest of Jerusalem. He is outside the city gates. He hears that Nero dies. He hears of the civil war. His soldiers say, you're the man, let's go. And he says, all right. He pulls the army back from Jerusalem. All the Jews and Christians believe that their prayers have been heard. He marches to Rome. He takes Rome uh, by force, not by, he didn't have to kill anybody, but he marches in with his legions, fresh from the battlefield. The, the, The Senate makes him emperor. He sends his son, Titus, back to Jerusalem to finish the job. So the Jews and Christians are dancing in the streets. We're saved. We're saved. Six months later, Titus shows up with an even larger force. Jerusalem is razed. 
The temple of God is destroyed, never to be rebuilt, not even to this day. The last holdouts are at the top of the mountain of Masada, where Titus sits at the bottom and, and hurls rocks up at him for a year, and they hold him off. After Vespasian dies, after his 10-year reign, Titus, his son, becomes emperor. Titus reigns for just a short two years. When he dies, everybody sort of breathes a sigh of relief and thinks, maybe we're free of them. And then Domitian, Titus's little brother, becomes emperor. This is called the Flavian dynasty. Vespasian, Titus, Domitian. They would r- rule for the remainder of the first century and their view toward Christianity was all out, and toward Jews, all out cruelty. Starts with Nero, goes all the way for the balance of the century. It only stops with a man on the left, down here in the bottom. His name is Trajan. Trajan was a, quote, good emperor. And he was good because he said that Christians should still be executed if they will not bow the knee to the emperor. And they should be executed for stubbornness. But mainly just leave them alone and only go about the prosecutions if you have corroborating evidence. And after that, that was the sort of adopted policy for the next 200 years. Christians were allowed to be unless in a local city somewhere there was a problem, then maybe a whole church would get in trouble and and they might be martyred. But what was going on in the Roman Empire over that time was the Roman Empire was on the brink of collapse itself. Uh, Its economy, barbarians, multiple uh, bad harvests in in Egypt, starvation, plague. And uh, this last guy here with this beautiful guy, if you have a picture of him on your paper, uh, Domocletian, uh, he launched the last genuine official persecution against Christians in 300 A.D. Yeah, that's it. Diocletian pulled the Roman Empire out of the toilet. He pulled the Roman Empire literally out of its own coffin. He would reign for 20 years. And once he consolidated his power and once he got military uh, reforms in place and the economy was back working and he had the barbarians kept at bay and they had food coming back in then he turned his attention to the ancient Roman religions and he said if you're not worshipping the ancient Roman religions and worshipping the empire we're done with you and the Christians by this time had been left alone they'd become very strong over two centuries all over Europe all over North Africa and throughout the Middle East and he couldn't kill them fast enough He tore down all the churches that he could get to. He tore down the great churches in the Middle East. Raised them to the ground. He is the reason that we don't have older manuscript. He burned all the manuscripts. Eusebius, who was in Caesarea when this all was going down. They took all those ancient documents. All those original autographs and burned them. And and he is the reason that that's, that's about as old as our manuscripts get. Anything older than that was away from a, from a major city center or away from a major church out in the desert somewhere. Uh, and he launched the last one. The irony of ironies is that within 20 years, Constantine would arise and he would take a different tact. Instead of trying to kill the Christians, he would use the Christians and bring them in as his partners 
and consolidate his own power. And then by the time you, you get to Theodosius, another 20 years, Christianity has gone in the space of a half a century from being hunted to extension to being the official religion of the Roman Empire. All of this is directly related to the Apostle Paul. I'm not just rambling Christian history here. It all, without Paul, bad, good, good, bad, ugly, or worse, none of this happens the way that it does. None of it. Mm -hmm. So the first century, formation with a lot of persecution. Second and third centuries, very quiet. At the end of the third century, beginning of the fourth century, another major persecution. And then, to your question, Trinity, the Roman Empire gradually replaced by Roman Catholicism. Uh, the empire crumbles and falls, and as it does, the church takes over what used to be the Senate, or what used to be a, a temple to Augusta, and they make it a church. Where, where Caesar used to live, the Pope lives. And this structure, this, the Catholic Church did not invent its structure. It inherited that structure from the Roman Empire. That's not a theological statement at all. It's just, that's how it is. You could say he was a Christian. He was baptized on his deathbed. He wouldn't convert. His mother certainly was a Christian. Helena. Helena built the Church of the Nativity, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, and the Church of the Transfiguration in the Holy Land. Not, not the churches that are there now. They, they've been torn down and rebuilt a hundred times over all the Crusades. But those sites, that's, that's uh, Constantine's mother's work. Other questions? <laughs> His question was, what is your favorite Pauline epistle and why is it Galatians? It's actually not. Yeah. It's Philippians. It's my favorite. Paul could be really ornery. Um, he could be sharp. Uh, he's a powerful personality. And with the Philippians, he's as pastoral as any group of people that he's ever, that he ever, he's a genuine affection for the Philippians. And we already know that that town nearly beat him to death and threw him in prison. But there was an affection for those people that he didn't have for, and you talk, talk about him, uh, you know, hugging and crying when he leaves the Ephesians, his love for the, for the Corinthians, certainly because that was his problem child, but there's something about the problem child that makes you want to try harder. But Philippians, I think, is my favorite.